Hi, welcome to our podcast. Um, this is uh, season 13. And uh, of course, we're talking about inflation, uh, which just seems to be at the heart of everything that, you know, from a personal and a business standpoint that we're dealing with. And so in this epi- in this season, what we're trying to do is explore what are the things that companies like yours might be trying to address and, and decisions that you're making in, in a fairly unusual set of circumstances. Um, I'm Mary Abazia, and with me is of course, Tom Spitali and Sean Wellam with uh, Impact Planning Group. And uh, we're going to explore branding. How does branding, uh, what role does branding play in inflationary times as well? Um, Tom, do you want to start us off? Well, Mary, I thought we said you were going to start us off. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you, well, I started, so, but I'll so keep here's going. Some, here's, some, here's some inside baseball. Here's how we do these things. We were talking right before recording this. And Mary, you said, I think you saw something on, was it Hidden Brain that you thought? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So why don't you, why don't you share that with us and kick us off? Yeah, they, okay, good. Yeah, I never want to talk a lot in the beginning, but I'm going to keep going then. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I love NPR's Hidden Brain. There's always something interesting and they're doing a lot on branding right now. And some of the things that that they were talking about and what we talk about is, is when should you invest in branding and when should you really even double down and some of the brands that they were talking about including Nike and um, you know and for Peloton <laughs> um, you know you look at the brands and and there are times when you're strong that you should leverage it even more because people are going to hold on to their money both personally and from a company standpoint they're going to hold on to their their purse strings tighter and if you're a brand that stands out, there's less discretion, I guess, as they're saying, even if it's a hard B2B, is I, this is what I'm still going to buy, even if I have limited funds in some way. Uh, and so, you know, one of the big questions for you is how much are you putting into branding and what exactly are you putting into branding? Are you doing the Nike thing, which is probably the one of the best examples where they continue through a lot of different situations to build their brand? Kind of pivot their brand enough to keep to keep going. Are you looking at what your brand stands for in the in the customer's mind and uh, reshaping that to make sure that it's fitting with what the current set of customer needs are? Wow, you know, Mary, what occurs to me as I hear you talking about this is is that we often tend to think about our brand as competing against other brands and options in our own industry. Seems to me that in inflationary times, the mindset of the buyer, the consumer changes a little bit, right? Where you say, oh man, everything's costing more. Got to tighten my belt a little bit. Which brands can I not, can I not live with, without? You know, can I not live with, is that how I say it? Can I live, which brands can I not live without? Yes. <laughs> and, and I think what happens is, that tends to cut across in inflationary times and times where people were tightening their belts, that tends to cut across product categories, right? Where you say, well, all right, this is a brand that I've got to have, can't live without. And so therefore, maybe there's another brand that I'm less passionate about in a completely other industry, another product category, buying category, that I choose to maybe make a different choice, a a, a lower cost choice. So I think it becomes critical 
that in, in inflationary times to, to manage your brand and hopefully before inflationary times, you know, you're set up to, 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 to stand out in your marketplace because your, your, you know, your competition set, I think necessarily increases. What do you think, Sean? I think it's, you got to look at what a brand means in, in terms of um, the affinity that people have with the brand. And part of that affinity is often trust, for example. And it, the brand also gives you an opportunity to, to increase prices if your costs are going up and it's justified, but to be believed that you have no choice. There's an acceptance when you have a degree of trust. If you think about, um, if you use a local car service to, to and from the airport and you know them pretty well and they call you up and they say, you know, fuel's gone up, insurance, everything's more expensive. I'm going to have to put prices up. You, you would believe them, feel some sympathy and wouldn't resent paying that. If you don't have any connection or trust or, or familiarity, then every time price is going up, your first instinct is to think, well, I'm going to shop around. I'm going to look for an alternative. Or I might, not, I might think you're just trying to squeeze money out of me and you don't have my best interest. So it's what the brand stands for. There's also the, the indispensability. You know, some luxury brands, I'm sure people feel they can't do without for lots of complex psychological reasons, but they tend to be immune from the same sort of pressures that affect brands. So when you think of why brand is an antidote for inflation or to allow you to increase prices, it's because of all that goodwill and affinity that you've built up over time. And if you don't have that, it's probably too late for this cycle, but that's the power of a brand. That's why you should continuously invest to get that position have people feel something when your brand is mentioned, not just see you as a, as a simple supplier, whatever. You yeah. Want. You know, um, that's such a good point, Sean, um, because they, they had this example, which I think drives your point even stronger is um, they, it, it's well-published study where they took a bunch of golfers like Tom mm -hmm. and half of them, they said, this is a Nike putter. And the other half, they said, they didn't tell them a brand. They just said, here's a putter. The putters were the same, of course. And they went out and what they showed is that there was a significant difference in the number of putter strokes that the people with the Nike, they had less strokes. So they performed better believing that they had a Nike powered putter <laughs> as opposed to the other ones. And, you know, if you believe that something empowers you, whether it's in business or personal life, it's going to take a long time to fall off your list if, you know, if, if it's all about something that you're trying to do and you believe this thing, I'll pay a little bit more for that Nike because I believe I'll golf better, for example. So that's like, I thought that was a fun way to look at the power of the brand. Yeah. The placebo effect in golf. I <laughs> no, guess oh, golf is super mental sport. It does lead to another thing about that. So as a consequence, feel, experiencing a better um, performance with the putter, they would pay more for it, even though it's it's physically the same as the alternative. Nevertheless, for whatever reason, placebo psychology or whatever, they will pay more for it. And it's another way of thinking about how brands add value. There was a similar example in um, pain medication, certainly in, in Europe, where a particular manufacturer of, of an ibuprofen type pain reliever had... Um, marketed for specific types of pain. So you could get a box that said for back pain, you get a 
box that said for migraine and one that said for muscle pain. Now, the thing is, the way painkillers work is universal. They, they affect the whole body. You can't target a particular pain. You can't have a painkiller for your back. If your back is the only thing hurting, that's where you'll feel the benefit, but it doesn't target it. And the advertising standards people said, you can't say that. Essentially, you can't claim that this is a targeted pain relief medication. And they had to withdraw their, their, their packaging. But here's the thing. People that bought that reported a better effect if they had back pain and bought a back pain medication. If they had a migraine and bought a migraine pain medication, they still would have paid more for what is essentially at its core. The molecular level is a generic ibuprofen type of painkiller. And yet they would pay more, which is the classic placebo effect in medicine where it's most commonly seen. But that gives, I guess, some idea of it's not just what people believe. It's also what they experience. That's a real yeah. brand, right? When you, you, yeah. you can actually point to something, say it was better. Not I like the brand. It was better for me. And that's the power of a brand. And it does remind me. Oh, go ahead, Tom. Well, Mary, just really quick. I was just going to say it shows how important perception is in marketing and in strategy. And we continue to run across companies that don't believe that you can measure perception. They don't really, they underrate how important perception is. And we all know that perception is reality, that it can be measured and that the companies that continue to invest in measuring perceptions are the ones that are making really great marketing and strategy decisions. So, Tom, does this explain your uh, your three putting records and four putts? Yeah. This, this we need to buy him a Nike for Christmas. And we need to get him a Nike putter for Christmas. No, thanks. I love my putter. <laughs> I make a lot of putts. Look, I, 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 you know, struggle in different parts of my game, but not in putting. And I love my putter. I'm not giving that thing up. So, sorry. No. I, don't, I don't want a Nike putter. <laughs> what are the things you were saying, which they brought up in this podcast? I'll, you know, if anyone wants to, I'll give you the, the link to this is um, at one point, exactly what you're saying is branding has a branding problem. And, you know, and the point is, is that so often branding sounds like fluff, you know, especially when you get into some industries. So it's even harder to justify when you go, if you're a marketer or even, you know, if you're, you know, in some other, you're, you're an engineer and you want to brand your product and you go to finance and say, I need some money to support my brand. And we don't need to do that. It's, it is interesting without understanding it, it seems like some, it, it's an advertising department's issue, you know, is, is kind of the way it's perceived, as opposed to being the core of what a company really is responsible for. You know, each of those products are babies and, you know, you would name your baby, why not name your products? And um, the classic example is my dear friend in the copper industry that, you know, they were making copper and they had, you know, item 427 and 625 and and he was he's a solid engineer and he just said you know there's a specific amount of copper that is required when we send it out to our customer because they have to manufacture from this this chunk of copper and so he called it the power bar and you know it was exact in, in its weight and everything but by naming it power bar by branding it um people paid 20% more and the sales were, were more than the other stuff that was item 726. So, and it was, it's that simple sometimes, even just to give in the parts number world, something that 
uh, has a name that people can, when they order it, they go, oh yeah, that's what I'm ordering as opposed to just numbers. Although it did work for R2D2, let's be honest. Okay. <laughs> occasionally, occasionally it can work. You know, I think that whole idea of, of the brand and, um, and how it translates in, into meaning by having a name and a personality, but you're right. When you come to um, B2B technical scientific businesses, you'll get some, some cynicism, some skepticism rather. And it'll be along the lines of, you know, brands are, are things, you know, you fluff up a product to convince people to pay too much money for something they don't need, sort of anti-advertising mindset that you might find across scientists and engineers. But the reality is any, any proper noun has a brand. You have a brand, I have a brand, the city you live in, the sports team that you follow, it's a brand. It's what comes into people's mind when they encounter that name. So if you say Chicago, that has an image to different people. It'll have different images to different people. And obviously some will have no resonance. Whether it's the Chicago Cubs, they will have an image for some people. Everything, you, you don't have to decide to have a brand. If your product has a name, it has a brand. Even in your limited market, when people think of your product, they will immediately flesh out some imagery some connections something that you stand for and that is your brand so you've got a brand whether you like it or not you might as well manage it to your benefit and take some control over how your brand's perceived because you don't get a choice and, and your success really is a, a function of the sum total of that brand perception across your target market right and so perception is important perception of your brand, the sum total of the perception of your brand determines your success in the marketplace. You can measure perception and you can, as we all know, through positioning and differentiation, you can manage that perception. You can improve that perception. And that's really what I, you know, the best strategic marketers in the world understand and do. Yeah. So and you, have, you have to have, I have a sense. Sorry, man, one final point, because I want to throw this to Tom. You've got to have a sense of what your brand is as well. You Say that you have first, one, yeah. you've yep. got to understand. And the only way you'll do that is not wishing what your brand was. You've got to speak to customers. You've got to find out how you're perceived as a starting point. So I have a question for you guys. I Pretend I'm a, um, an engineer and I have a, a product. And the margins are a little bit thin, but I believe, because I heard this podcast, I believe that I'd like to brand my, my product and really you know, build it, even in inflationary times when it's really tough to get budgets through. How do I convince my company to invest enough to let me brand in it and, and or pass on some additional cost to my customers in some way? So that, because I can't just say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a better brand, so I'm going to charge you 10% more. How do I do that, really, if I'm in that role? I think, Sean, I think Sean just said it. First, got to figure out what is the perception of your offering now and what's the perception of the, the competitive offerings in the marketplace. I think that you could uh, pretty quickly show that those, those existing perceptions are indicative of the market share situation you know, currently. And by seeing that, if indeed your market share situation is you know, suboptimal, you probably can see a direct line to the industry leader and the perceptions that 
um, you know, that, that they own in customers' minds. And then you get strategic about how you shift those perceptions. And that is indeed branding. You've got to, I, I, first of all, it's difficult. The, the, the chances of rocking up to finance with a plan that says we're going to turn our commodity type product into a, a brand that has a perceived value in excess of the competition is going to be met with skepticism. And for good reason. It's really hard and it costs a fortune to build a brand in the way that many people think of building a brand. So if you understand where you are today, because as we said, everyone has a brand. You might not like it, but it's reality. Accentuate the positives of that brand. See which of those you can leverage. I believe you have to start small with an understanding of what the potential is and also minimize the negatives. And the other thing you can do in a competitive market is understand your competition's brand because they also have one. And if someone's deemed as being the unreliable or the slightly expensive or the difficult to maintain, or indeed they have positive brand attributes, understand the landscape, understand the different where you are different right now. And even if it's only a minor, small positive in a sea of similarity, that has to be the lever that you start to pull. And that's where you invest. And I think you first need to demonstrate clarity of understanding, a purpose and a, a plan to move forward and some evidence of why this makes sense, which is usually done through experimentation or through customer testimonials. And then you can put the package together and, and maybe dare to knock on finance's door and start talking branding. But um, do the, do the groundwork before you, uh, before you ask a question that, that can have the answer. No. Oh, I think Mary, Yep. Yep. Lost you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, um, the, uh, the other thing that we had talked about is, is knowing where you are in the life cycle too, right? I mean, branding has a different role at different stages of life cycle. And Tom, I think, you know, you had some, some thoughts on, on life cycle and when it, when it's easier or harder to brand or, or to extract value from your brand. Yeah, just, just as by way of a quick follow-up, we talked about Netflix, I believe, in each of our first two um, episodes of this season, and we did a little bit more research and a little bit more thinking about why Netflix's um, uh, price increase in January was such an abject failure, where they lost 200,000 subscribers and $54 billion worth of market cap. We kind of postulated a couple of reasons for that, but we, our, our latest thinking on this is interesting and we can expand upon it per, perhaps in future um, podcasts, but we think maybe Netflix got fooled by the stage of the life cycle that they were in um, during the pandemic when outside entertainment expenses really came inside the four walls of the home and uh, people bought numerous streaming services and, you know, to Netflix, it may have seemed like a real growth phase in their industry's life cycle, which is, generally speaking, a less price sensitive point of, of time. We think that coming out of the pandemic, when those enter, outside the home entertainment dollars are, 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 are re returning to people's budgets, we think that Netflix woke up to find that their industry was much more mature than they, than they thought with signs like, fragmentation of suppliers, you know, lots of different streaming services available now, a lack of perceived differentiation from one perceived uh, streaming service to another, um, 
and you know, low risk of switching. <laughs> you know, people like I can get like go on Netflix because they're they're hiking the prices up two dollars two dollars a month, and I've got plenty of stuff queued up on Apple TV or Amazon, right? So we do think that perhaps as a as a follow up to that story, Netflix may have gotten fooled. And you do have to, even in inflationary times, I think the lesson is in inflationary times, you still have to know what stage of the life cycle that you're in that can guide the, you know, the severity of your price increase and, and um, you know, how much or how little you can go up, you know, and, and be successful. I think Netflix had a, a, a really bad surprise there. Yeah. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed our, um, our, uh, examination of inflationary times and what brand uh, the, role, the role of brand is and maybe some of the decisions that you need to make during those times. Um, we look forward to seeing you in future podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.